everyone. It's me, Dr. Donna, your guide on this journey into the world of family-run businesses. Join me as we explore the keys to fostering a dream team mentality in your family enterprise. Achieving seamless succession, scalability, and nurturing new leadership through expert insights, personal stories, and actionable tips will help you create a harmonious, thriving family business environment. And that's why today I have on my very special guest, Gregory Monday. You can call him Greg. He is a family business attorney in Madison, Wisconsin, and a trusted advisor. He helps family businesses succeed and prosper for multiple generations of owners and their loved ones. In particular, he advises family business owners on matters of governance, ownership, and succession. He works with his colleagues to provide family business clients with a full range of legal services, including transactional and litigation practices. And his goal is to help family businesses achieve the most they can as a source of wealth and personal fulfillment for the families that own them. You should also know that Greg is Lawyer of the Year in Family Business in Madison. He also teaches at Madison and has written a book, The Lawyer's Guide to Family Business Succession Planning, a step-by-step -step approach for lawyers, business owners, and advisors. Welcome, Greg. I always have a wonderful conversation with you when we get to chat, so I'm excited to have you on. Thank you. I, I feel the same. Oh, yep. Mutual admiration society. What can I say? <laughs> you know, we were talking just before this about this niche of family businesses and how people are sometimes, you know, surprised about that or how do you do that? How did you get into this niche? Yeah. So it's a, a niche that I've been been in for about 30 years, but I didn't think it was a niche. And it, it really it's surprising that it is because 80%, about 80% of the businesses in the U.S. are family-owned businesses. So I had worked between, well, I worked my way through school at a restaurant that was family-owned, not my family, someone else's family. And then between undergrad and law school, I was out for about five years and I worked in other family businesses. And then also on a magazine, uh, I wrote and edited articles about family business. So by the time I got to law school, that was really a topic I felt that, that I knew a lot about and that I felt drawn to. So I came out of law school and started working with people who own family businesses. And I was working, doing a lot of estate planning and, and kind of succession planning for a long way down the road. But I started to realize as I followed what happened to family businesses that, that had higher, higher profiles, you know, and you read about some family businesses and their struggles or successes in the news. And there was one that I followed really closely. It was an Indian company, huge Indian company. And the owner died without a will. And his two sons then engaged in a struggle for control of the company. And I followed it for a while and I thought, well, this company's not going to survive because there's no estate plan. And that was really kind of common thinking. But what happened was it, it did survive. The family went through a lot of turmoil, but the business never failed. What I realized was the reason the business didn't fail was part of their stock was traded on the public markets. And because of that, they had to engage in governance practices and other structural practices that were consistent with a public company. So for example, in a family business, you often don't find a strong functioning board. It's great. And I applaud those families that have that. It's something I recommend often. 
But here you had a functioning board with independent directors on it, some really qualified people. And those were the people who were able to step up. And even though the family was in turmoil, make sure that turmoil was not ultimately dragging the, the company down with it. And so in some senses, it's a, it's a success story. I mean, after a lot of litigation and wrangling over the family business, it was, it was separated and, and, it, and it proceeded successfully after that. So I started to think, wow, governance is really important and ownership succession on the business side, the contract side of business succession is just as important as, as having the estate plan in place. And so that broadened my practice quite a bit. Estate planning and contracts or business transactions practices are very often separate and siloed. And so the estate planner isn't necessarily thinking about shareholders agreements mm. and employment contracts. The transactional lawyer, uh, the corporate lawyer, isn't necessarily thinking about charitable remainder trusts or postnuptial agreements. And so I really stopped thinking of myself as an estate planner or a business lawyer and just said, you know what, it's not about the kind of law I do. It's about the clients I represent. And 100% of them now are, are family business clients. And I'm able to look at their internal affairs and their succession issues based on from a perspective of a business lawyer, a contract lawyer, a tax lawyer, and an estate planning lawyer. You know, I think that you're making a, a point that the family business is so much more complex and everything is intertwined. So you can't, you can't really separate the personal and the business. They're, they're integrated. And when you don't have a plan, I mean, that, the conflict that that can cause, I'm impressed that this company made it through that because so many family businesses don't and the conflict and fighting that arises. I mean, I know one of the reasons I do what I do is because I, like you, I want them to last generations. I want them to leave a legacy. And it just makes me sad when I see the, the families just going at each other and knowing it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. I don't want to imply that this family was happy with this process. I mean, there was a lot of lawsuits between the brothers and there was even a potential assassination attempt that the family did come out and say this was not part of the, the struggle for the company. But the fact that the public had to be reassured that it hadn't mm -hmm. come to that level, you know, it was a bad situation. I don't know if it was true, but at one point I heard the story that they both lived in the same high-rise building and they had separate elevators yeah. installed so they'd never have to run into each other in the elevator. I don't know if that was true, but, but the fact that people were saying it really indicated how, how much this family struggled. If you're only focusing on estate planning of the senior generation, you're not necessarily involving the next generation in the discussion. And I think that's where the governance side of it, the business side of it, is more helpful from a standpoint of family discussion. So you know that you're going to pass the wealth down to your children. You know that some of them will, will own it. Maybe they'll own it in different percentages. And you can put all that in a state plan and they won't know about it maybe until, uh, until the senior generation dies. But if you're talking about, let's do a shareholders agreement, let's talk about you know, how the bylaws of the board or the governance structure would change, then it's natural that you would bring the, the next generation into the discussion. That's where there is a discussion. And when there's a discussion, sometimes people have different opinions. And that's why, that's where the family dynamic really gets involved. If it's just the estate planning, the family dynamic probably is going to get involved after the senior generation dies. Or if that person retires during their lifetime and that's how they exit. And then they're dealing with those same kind of issues about succession and governance and 
co-ownership and decision-making, but that's not an ideal time either because then the stakes are real. You know, they're, they're trying to make all of those decisions while the senior generation is, is wanting to retire and move on or, or maybe suffering some you know, health issues. I find that doing it when, you know, when the leader still has the, I hate to say the leverage, but you know, still has the clear role of being the leader in the family and then have those discussions about the, the next generation. I've seen the medical issue happen a lot where all of a sudden the leader has some medical issue that takes them out of the business, at least for a while. Uh, um, a previous guest was talking about his father who had a family-run business and then had a stroke. And he was okay. Like he recovered and came back. But it wasn't until that moment that they all realized they had no plan. Right. And, you know, you wait to that point and then you're not at your highest level of functioning to make the plan. And you don't want to wait till till a crisis or that moment that you have to make the decision to make the decision, right? You want that well thought out and you want it communicated, right? That's that's the other piece I see is the lack of communication. And you ask, well, have you discussed that? And it's like, well, no. And all the assumptions that happen, I'm sure you see that. Yeah. I, the other thing I like about planning early on is that there can be real immediate benefits to the kinds of discussions that you and I would have with the owners of a family business or the next generation. So in estate planning, a lot of people think about, it's hard to justify sometimes paying for estate planning, engaging in estate planning right now. If you think this really, hopefully I'll live my life expectancy and these documents won't even be given effect for 30 years. If our succession planning is really just focused on that, there can be kind of that, some of that mentality that, you know, we'll kick this can down the road and, and we'll pick it up when I'm close to retirement. But I really find that having those discussions early on can be helpful to both from a practical standpoint and an emotional standpoint. One is emotionally, you can help develop people's expectations before those expectations are really locked in, mm-hmm. you know, in, in an unrealistic way. And the other is that there are practical resolutions that you could come up with if you do it far enough in advance that maybe you couldn't come up with later in the life of the business or the life of the family. For example, I have a number of clients who have had children who were both leaders, both candidates to lead the whole company. In these cases, a lot of times the company was more diversified. So it didn't just have one product. It had the diversified products or, or services. And we actually were able to find a way over time to lead those two children into the different branches of the company and have them actually develop those companies essentially into separate, but also united companies. And whether that was using a holding company at the top and then having the two separate product lines as, as separate subsidiaries or actually taking them apart through a tax-free reorganization and having each of the companies essentially continue to be that family's business that has that same you know, 75 years, 100 years in the family. Mm-hmm. We really were able to justify that for, for both sides. In the anecdote that I led with, that was ultimately what they did as well, as it was a, it was a conglomerate. And there was one brother who was married to a movie star, and the other brother was kind of a more serious retiring person. So the one who was married to the movie star got a lot of the media side of things okay. and utilities, and the other brother got like the oil and gas interests and more of <laughs> The stuff that was less exciting for the, the public and the normal person. It worked out okay for them. Well, they had a lot of lawsuits based on contracts that they made with one another because mm-hmm. these companies still relied on one another. 
But if you do it long enough in advance, you might be able to create two companies that you've resolved those problems of where they have to depend on each other and they, they can really be, be strengths instead of areas of weaknesses. Just an example of how you know, we can say, hey, planning right now could identify tax efficiencies, could identify practical business solutions and, and other things that are really beneficial to the family immediately, unlike that other kind of planning that might not come into effect for a long time in the future. So don't put it off. You don't have an excuse because <laughs> we're going to help you right now whether you want it or not. Right. And prevent that future uncertainty or assumptions conflict. Because from my side, you it's like you have the legal end. My side, one of the things I do, which is what you're talking about, is work to figure out what each person's strengths are and make sure that they're in the right role and you know what are they interested in because you see that resentment build too when they're not happy in their role and they want to do something else and that's i just really like that such a brilliant solution of continuing the legacy but putting people where they'll be most happy and in some situations have maybe have some less interaction but more amicable interaction when they do. And I'm kind of throwing it on that case that that's what it is, but that is what it is. So when it is family time, they're, they're able to separate out. That's what I don't do because I'm a lawyer and I look at my law degree and I, I, I took <laughs> one undergrad psychology class. I know what I'm good at, but having a partner in the project who can work with the family on next generation, and uh, what is it that they really want? What are their strengths and weaknesses or not even weaknesses? I mean, really, what are, what are their strengths? And building that to a positive because there are a lot of people who aren't organized, but they're great creative minds because of mm -hmm. that. You know, they have their tension goes all over the place. They can't sit in a meeting for, you know, 15 minutes. So it seems like, well, I don't know what we're going to do with this person. And yet those are the kind of people who maybe big picture come up with amazing big picture ideas because they take totally unrelated subjects and they just kind of, because their mind yeah. is jumping around. You know, they have these great ideas and, and other people are really good at focusing and doing detail-oriented tasks or analyzing financial statements, being able to identify and stay with the numbers to identify what's important. Those are both strengths. There are places for both of those and successful business. You businesses. need both of those. And as you said, a successful business. I have clients where the brother is the big visionary and he's got this vision that he's ready to put into action immediately. And then the sister, though, is very detail oriented. And so she pumps the brakes, but he kind of keeps it going forward and she figures out the tactical. It's it's really a, a brilliant team together. If you don't get over that conflict, if you don't recognize the strengths that each of you bring to the table and learn how to integrate it, you'll just keep butting heads, though, right? Right. Especially if there's a culture that one position is more important than the other. That's something that, that I really like to avoid. I mean, just discussing about all the positions with equal dignity, but also there are times you don't have to call someone a president or somebody a, a CEO or, you know, we can, or we can have two, or we can come up with other names. If you go to Wikipedia and you look up corporate titles, it's really funny. Some of the titles people have made up. I mean, th this entry just goes on and on and on. And it really demonstrates that you're not required to just stick within the bounds of normal corporate titles. Your family can do it the way it makes most sense to your family. The new ones they create, it's interesting sometimes in corporate, in corporate. you know, how you see that. It's funny. And then 
we still have to look at how people are compensated and whether the economic benefits of the family business are being fairly distributed mm -hmm. and what's the logic behind that and helping people understand when and why there might be a difference and that that's also not a scorecard. It's not necessarily something I can do alone. It really helps to have, mm -hmm. you know, somebody who works with families. I mean, that can tap into all kinds of things from, you know, birth order expectations to, well, you were always dad's favorite anyway, and all of that and the, the competitiveness that, that siblings can have. And, you know, I'm talking siblings, but it happens, you know, father to son and, and, you know, mother to son and daughter and all those dynamics that, that play out and even just what, what money means to them and the family and what their money stories are. It's, yeah, it's, it's fun work <laughs> to move into that. And then to send it your way, to turn it into a contract and make it stick, right? Make it legal. And that's really important. Have it in writing and have it enforceable. The whole idea of people living in the state of nature and, and how without some governance system, you know, life is whatever the quote is, awful and short. I do feel it's important to have legal documents governing your family that assume that everyone is going to act on their worst instinct and your documents should nevertheless produce a good result. Don't do anything on a handshake because that's the way we do it in the family. Don't leave too much up to discretion. Decide these rules. The rules that I put into my contracts are most often process oriented. Yeah. So I won't say like, if one member of the family is bought out of the business, here's the purchase price. I'll say, here's how the purchase price will be determined. And then go over with the family, the different ways that the purchase price could be determined because maybe that's going to be five years from now or 20 years from now. So it's got to focus on the process because if we tried to decide what the price is now, yeah. the document wouldn't continue to be effective mm -hmm. or as effective as it could be. The same is with employment and compensation decisions. How does a family member get a job with the company? How do they get a promotion? How do they get into leadership? Well, we can't choose. A lot of times the, the generation we're talking about might even, you know, be minors or they, they have children who are minors. And we can't identify who's going to be in those different positions or who should get hired. We have to come up with a process instead, a process that seems fair. And it's probably not just your your uncle deciding <laughs> right. who gets hired and who doesn't and how much they get paid. You know, it's usually a more collaborative system. A lot of times in these businesses, and I work with a lot of mature businesses, but it still often happens that you have the senior generation with one owner or one leader, and that you're moving on to a system of co-ownership and collaborative decision-making. Mm -hmm. Whether that senior person is the founder or not, I often call it kind of the founder model, where it's, you know, this yeah. dynamic person who has kind of ruled, has made all the decisions, and at some point maybe owned all the stock. Now we're, we're moving on to a completely different type of structure with co-ownership and, and collaborative decision-making and a lot of different interests involved, including in-laws and grandchildren, nieces and nephews and things like that. We need to come up with a new structure because probably was very informal in the old, mm -hmm. you know, under the old model, the founder model. It's really important to come up with a process that will work with co-owners. I have definitely seen that and it is something different. And sometimes the founder, because they've never run it that way, struggles with that and what it should look like. What I love that you're talking about is this process that is like a formula and it just takes, it takes the emotion of it. It takes any favoritism out of it. It's just really clear. Like, this is how we make this decision. This is how we make that decision. I just think that's brilliant. 
you know, I've just seen the uncle brings his son in because his son's out of work. And so now and now he's got an equal stake as the son of the other brother who's been working there 30 years and all yeah. of that conflict that ensues from that. Or another one that I see often is the senior generation has a spouse who's active in the business, but is not the mother of the owner's children. It sometimes it can be a great relationship between the spouse and the children. And sometimes it's the, the parent who's kind of holding that relationship together. That can be a problem if we haven't defined people's roles or created some kind of decision-making process. If that owner dies, there's no common relationship between the remaining spouse and, and the children. Sometimes it's it's just as good or, or, or the same as if they had been the parent, but sometimes it's not. When it's not, mm -hmm. it really helps if you've done that planning in advance and, and created that structure. How are the children going to co-own the business with the spouse and, and will they coexist in the business as well? And when that comes out as a surprise, it can really stir things up. And that then I'm sure they can end up in litigation if, if it's not handled properly. That's right. And it, it's also one of those situations where nobody's necessarily wrong. You know, yeah. it's, it's different style, different age, different generation, different history, you know, that makes it hard. If you come at these problems saying there may be situations where nobody's wrong, but they just can't agree. Well, they have good points, but they're not aligned. Then trying to work through those, trying to create greater consensus where the family members buy into it you know, before the crisis, you can explore a little bit more why they're not aligned and find out what's important to the various people, as you said. And maybe they haven't even thought about it very much. I had one situation where this senior generation was actually divorcing and both spouses wanted to stay in the business. And one of them had been in the business much longer. And so I was brought in to kind of help mediate the situation. What we came up with was what the one spouse who had been in the business for less time, what that spouse really liked was being kind of the face of the business and doing a lot of the, the charitable stuff. And so it turned out that the business, the, you know, the other owner and the, and the next generation thought that it'd be really helpful and important if that spouse led the family foundation. And it turns out that then that spouse was able to do all the ribbon cuttings and all the things that had the family name or the company name on it that were great that they were doing for the community, that spouse was there and, and it was a very large foundation. So, mm. um, that person had a staff, um, to help them out. They had an office and facilities, just like anyone else who was in the business. It really actually became kind of, you know, the face of the business and the community, even though the ownership had ceased at the, like, that person had been bought out at the, at mm -hmm. the time of the divorce. There are, I don't think they ever would have thought about that on their own. I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm just saying it took a lawyer to come in there and there were therapists involved on both sides and to work as a team to find out what is it that's important and, hey, can we do that from a legal and economic standpoint? You know, I love that real wraparound approach where you, you know, in any business, right, you should have your lawyer, your accountant, you know, those different pieces. And of course, I'm biased, but having a coach in there as well that you can turn to to work through these situations from the personal, emotional mindset angle to to help facilitate the rest. I just find that people have more success through these sticky situations. And to your point, 
you know, peeling back. People sometimes think they know what they want, but they're they're kind of assuming the path to get to what they want. You know, they think that it's it's this one thing they want, but when you look at it, it's it's a different outcome, and there's multiple paths to getting there, like you did in this case. And just having that outside perspective can be really helpful in in giving those ideas that they wouldn't have thought of on their own. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's it's not even looking at the past. You know, sometimes in the succession TV show, there's a lot of emphasis on family history and on what went on. But I think it's really important to focus on who the people are now and and how they'll behave in the future. You know, what will make you happy in the future? What is it that you want to do? And that's where that can can really help. I mean, there, there's there's a lot of insight I think that can be gained from family history, but Ultimately, you have to do something with that insight. Yes. You know? so, so the question is, who are you now? What will make mm-hmm. you happy? What will help you coexist with the other members of the family in this business or we're adjacent to it? Yeah. You know, sometimes the answer is that you don't want to be in that industry. You want to do something else, but you still want your name associated with that industry, you want your children to be able to have that opportunity. There are ways we can do that too. I want to speak to that point you make about the the present and moving forward. Sometimes when people bring in, say, a psychologist like me, who's also a coach, they they think of it as therapy or they think like, oh, you're just going to dig too deep and you really shouldn't be as, as a coach. It's not the therapy and it's like, what is, what part of the history is absolutely relevant to this that we need to address? And what don't you even need to know? Uh, my career, even as a therapist, was as a cognitive behavioral therapist. So how do you think and how does that impact your behavior? So really looking um, that immediate, right? What's the present? Where do you want to go? How do we get there? And only dealing with the with the past stuff that's really inhibiting you from getting there. Uh, but yeah, I'm not sitting there. It's funny, like, tell me about your mother. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I think that that is really helpful. I mean, there's there's exceptions to to everything, and you may have a family member who is just a completely toxic person. If I'm representing, you know, one of the other family members, the question is just: Is there any way that that you can coexist with this person? And if not, mm-hmm. you know, is there some way that we can detach your interests without losing? something that's you know really important to you about the family legacy or the family business or your ability to work in the industry. What's the best case scenario given all the facts, right? And there can be toxic people that shouldn't be working together. And, you know, sometimes those those splits or boundaries, I mean, everybody needs boundaries, but sometimes it's just not possible to get that, that sort of ideal outcome versus what's realistic, right? It's a good way to put it. Yeah. Ideal versus what's realistic or impossible versus right. what's realistic. Right. I have spent time in situations where I've done a lot of wishing that the other person would change. Yes. You know? And ultimately yeah. realize that. Yeah, I think we all have in one way or another, right? Well, so you can't change even, somebody else, right? Right. Uh, I'm curious, what are some of the um, situations that you do see end up in litigation and and maybe that could have been prevented yeah what i see most often where i would say no one's really to blame would be the situation where there was no planning on the business Mm -hmm. side in advance Mm -hmm. 
and everything was in the estate planning documents as, you know, everybody gets an equal share. It doesn't say even whether that's share of stock or voting stock or whatever, there's no, no real attention on the business side. And then you just have people worried about what's going to happen to the business in the meantime, or worried what's going to happen to their interest in the business. And no one can tell them what's supposed to happen. The, the only thing that they can do is really try to come together as a group and come up with a resolution. And that's difficult to do with no guidelines and everybody's got their own interests. And maybe the senior generation, maybe the way I'm remembering, you know, what parent told me is completely different from what you remember parent told you. And maybe parent was that kind of parent who just told everybody what they wanted to hear. Right. And those are situations where I see that that's unfortunate, but a lot of times the parties have to get to the courthouse steps before they can finally say, all right, let's figure this out. This is crazy. I would say that happens more often than not. The other thing is people who are given too much authority and don't understand how their authority is limited by fiduciary duties or economic boundaries or parameters who just take their apparent authority overboard and start actually mm -hmm. cheating their siblings, telling them the, a story in their head that, hey, it's okay if they don't get everything that's coming to them because they wouldn't have any of this if it weren't for how brilliant I am yes, and how hard I've worked. Yes. And, and then they just flat out steal from their siblings. I mean, and whether you say it's stealing or whether you, you somehow candy coat it, there are people out there who, who will do that and, and who will think they're right and their spouse will think they're right. And they'll have a group of people around them who are enabling them. And sometimes it's the lawyer. If you're a lawyer who's involved in a family and, and you're kind of cynical about where your fees are coming from, you're going to understand that your best bet to, is to represent the alpha family member. Then when that person is in charge, you're going to continue to represent that company. And it's a real cynical way of putting it, but I think there are people out there and maybe they don't think of it like that consciously, but they think about, hey, this is the person who's the leader. This is a person who's going to be the decision maker. And so, you know, that's the person who I'm going to really focus my services toward. Yeah. And the problem is that it's difficult in those relationships once you've kind of gone that far to start saying no to that person in terms of what, you know, what's, is, do you think my conversation is fair? Sure. Yeah. You work harder yeah, than anyone. Yeah. You know? And so there's a lot of reinforcement going on there for some bad behavior or at least not that behavior that's not consistent with a fiduciary duty, it definitely is not consistent with, uh, I guess, the relationship that the parents probably would have wanted for the child who's running the business and the way he or she is treating the siblings. A lot of times when a sibling threatens litigation in those circumstances, the leader is insulted, tends to double down, yeah. the, tells his or her lawyer to send off some angry stuff. You know, they stop having Christmas. I mean, you know, it's the whole, it, it just, that one's, those are really hard to stop. Those mm -hmm. usually more often the kind that go to trial. Yeah. It's hard when you're dealing with a sense of entitlement and, you know, this, this should be all mine or, and then you add that they have authority and power and, and control. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you know, sometimes it's the spouse as well who, who believes this and is supporting the person. And I'm reminded of a, of a client who felt that his, uh, a family member had the spouse in their ear, which led to mm -hmm. litigation. And now in the next generation doesn't want anybody's spouses involved in any part <laughs> of the business or, 
not present for family meeting, not yeah. present for board meetings. It's it's very interesting how that that shield has gone up and whether that is or isn't in the best interest of the family, you know, I, I can't say exactly, but looking yeah. at that and whether you're making a decision based on the present or the past, right? Yeah. Now, the, the in-law situation is, I find really on a case-by-case basis, you can't wish away the in-law. I mean, they're there. <laughs> right. So sometimes it does make sense to have them in the room when you have the conversation because either they can hear it directly from the advisors or they can hear it through their spouse. Right. It could be as accurate. Yeah. You can get it, into that game of telephone and and I've seen that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's just natural. I mean, as I said, in some cases it can be abused, but but a lot of times, you know, if you're that spouse and you see your spouse getting up at, you know, five in the morning and getting down to yeah. the office first and, you know, maybe spending the whole time at Disney World on his laptop and the cell phone and all, and you're saying, what? And you're you're supposed to worry about what dividend your siblings get? I mean, you should be getting a higher, you know, salary and you should yeah. and you know, and, and so you can't even in those situations vilify that. Right. Right. But yeah. they will be vilified unless somebody helps them realize that, you know, this is just natural. It's just hard. Sometimes I compare it to a marriage where you, you have to each give 70%. Because if you, everybody goes in thinking you're supposed to give 50%, they give 50%. <laughs> but you'll fall short. Everybody's got to give 70%. And then hope that at least 50% lands because there's <laughs> a bunch a of stuff way. you're doing yeah, that you think is giving that the other person doesn't even care about. <laughs> you right. know, I, and often like I'll see that the other, my other examples on an airplane when there's that one armrest, which I don't understand, but there's only one. <laughs> and if you've got to share it with a stranger, maybe you're the kind of person who doesn't think your arm should touch. So you start out taking up only half and you're, you're pretty careful about calibrating that. And then they start touching your arm, you know, because they're using the other half. But so then you move over to a quarter and you feel, all right, this is really fair. And then the person moves over more and eventually <laughs> they take the whole armrest. They have no idea how mad you're getting or it's driving you crazy because they're right. they're feeling it's their lucky day because they're next to somebody who doesn't really use the armrest very much. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's just a big misunderstanding. Yeah. And then someone like me will finally, you know, actually I'll suck it up the whole flight. I won't see anything. <laughs> But some people get mad toward the end of the flight and yell at the person and, and they're completely taken by surprise. Right, right. Or give them so. a big push. Right, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm curious uh, before we go, because we've talked a bit about governance and boards, and I see a lot of times in family businesses that they're really resistant to this and they will do the minimum to fill the, you know, the legal requirements. So they'll meet once a year and it's not necessarily productive, but meets the requirement. What is your thought or recommendation on boards for family businesses? I definitely think that there should be independent directors, well-qualified directors involved in every step, because I do understand some hesitation that the hesitation I think I understand the most is that there is a belief that often that a single charismatic creative leader is going to do the best in the success of the business and that you don't want to have this group, this committee that's somehow going to 
put limitations on that or make it too much of a hassle for that leader to express that creativity or take the risks that that leader is, is willing to take. And so I do understand that, but that's just a matter of the documents surrounding your, your board structure, getting the right mix of oversight and freedom to, to lead. I think you can address that problem. And I think it's a legitimate concern. But apart from that, I, I often hear people saying, I, I just don't want strangers to come in and ru run our family business. But that's really not what they're doing. And I find that if you can talk a little bit more about, you know, what that concern is, that you can find ways to, to bring in people who don't have the ability to interfere in the family to the extent that it's not consistent with the culture, but rather, as I said, carry out the process that you think they, that the family members have set up to say this is a fair process. So there may be times when the family members should prevail. And so I've written into board charters or bylaws that if there's, for example, if there's a tie and a majority of family members are on the one side, mm -hmm. that that's the side that's going to prevail. Okay. So you don't have the non-family members with a veto unless it's something like um, compensation or something where there's a conflict of interest. That can really be done. But w what I think is so important about having the independent boards is that with co-ownership, it's really going to help address a lot of problems. It's, you're going to get a diversity of board members, not if you have only family members. They're, we're only in one business very often. They only have sat on one board. Rather, bring people in with different talents who have experience on different boards and also have complementary experience. But also, they can, when there is conflict within the family, they can be the first kind of line of mediation mm -hmm. or even arbitration among family members if they're, if they're really staying involved and, and they're people that the, the family can trust, uh, they might submit to that kind of mediation instead of even ever going outside the family or the business when they have a dispute. The reason I say bring the independent board on, even if there's one owner, it's so that the family members can get used to having that board and understanding what that board does. And having that built into the culture that, hey, we go to the board. If we can't explain it to the, what we're doing to the board, you know, then maybe our other stakeholders won't, won't understand or maybe we need to rethink it. It's good to have that reality check. It creates uh, discipline and, and it's not a bad thing to have the formalities in place where maybe I'm one of these big picture people and I like to take risks and I'm creative. But if I can't write that down into a business plan and a corresponding budget, is the rest of the team going to be able to implement all my great ideas or are we just going to stumble you know, right out of the gate? Well, having an independent board that you need to explain those things to can be a way of making sure that they are more likely to be implemented. I think it's, it's oversight, but it's more almost like a way of mentoring the business mm -hmm. or being a, the business's you know, best friend in a way, the family's guardian angel in a way. I agree. And when it's done right, it is so helpful, you know, like you're saying, most family businesses, that's the only business they've really ever known. And most family businesses start with a with a passion or an idea. And it's not necessarily because they have that MBA and usually not. Um, so having right. those diversity of opinions and an outside look from someone not in the family can be really helpful. I know that a lot of family businesses I think are very insular. They keep it close to the vest. And it is, it's hard to earn your way into a family business and be a trusted advisor. That 
that really does take work. It's it, I find it's not the same as as other businesses. Right. No, I agree with that. One one last point I'd make about boards is sure. I always encourage my families to have the next generation start serving on boards as soon as they can. Oh, and that great. may be boards of local charities where it's a little bit easier to get a seat than it would be in a for-profit. It should be a well-governed charity so that they develop good habits. But they'll start to see you know, how board meetings are run and how helpful a board can be. They'll see that their own, after a little bit of experience, that they're bringing something you know, to the board. And I think it'll be easier for them, for them to recognize that, hey, other board members could bring some value to our, our family as well. This has been great, Greg. Is there one last tip or piece of advice that you really want to hit home with the, <laughs> with the audience here? Well, I always say family business succession is not a contest. It's a puzzle. It's not a contest to see who will get the most power and the highest paid position. It's really a puzzle with all different unique pieces. And when we work together to put that together, it usually makes a really interesting, unique picture. I agree. Tell us how people can find you, Greg. I'm pretty easy to find, I think. And I'm, I'm with the Reinhardt Law Firm. If yeah. you Google me in Madison or with, with my name in Reinhardt, you'll, you'll find me right away. I've got a, a, a pretty good online presence. And, and easy uh, to remember last name, Monday. <laughs> That's right. I Sometimes it. it causes a little confusion, but no, it's easy to remember. <laughs> so no, I'd be happy to talk to anybody who's, you know, going through the family business succession process or who just wants, you know, a few words of encouragement. Fantastic. And we'll put Greg's information into the notes on the podcast, as well as where you can find his book. I want to thank you again, Greg, for coming and talking to us today. I've learned a lot and I hope our audience has too. And I want to thank everyone at home or on the go for listening. If you did find this show helpful, please go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button. It really does wonders for the show so more people can find Courageous Conflict organically. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, just go ahead and drop me a line podcast podcast.drdonnamarino.com. I do read every email I get, and whether that's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you, those are probably my favorite, and uh, I'd love to hear from you. So I'm Dr. Donna, and I will see you on the next episode.